welcome to the Grace Baptist Sermon Podcast. Pastor Andy Oliver is our Bible teacher and expositor. Today's message is the consequences of corruption in Nehemiah 9. And turn to Nehemiah chapter 9. Part of the, the Christian vocabulary, a theological term that's commonplace, is the, is the word repentance. It is a component of salvation and restoration for the wayward child of God. It means literally to change your mind. And in repentance toward God, what are we, what are we changing our mind about? That's uh, something of a debate. We are changing our minds actually in regard to several things. First, we are changing our, our minds in regard to our sin. Before, before our salvation, we, we justified ourselves. And, uh, you share the gospel with folks these days and people are very insistent that I'm a good person. And, uh, the reality is, of course, according to the scripture, is that we are not good people. We, uh, we come up with all sorts of excuses for our sin. We change what is right and wrong. We see this so much in our, our culture in the last decade or so. We try to make ourselves appear to be better than we are. We like to compare ourselves to others. We always know somebody that's worse than we are. With repentance, biblical repentance, all those excuses go away. We see our wickedness and our sense of guilt before a holy God. Number two, we're changing our minds about our ability to do something about our sin problem. I have nothing, I have no means at my disposal to remove the stain of sin on my life and conscience. I am fearful of the consequences of my sin before a, a holy God. My guilt before a just and holy God. I need to change my mind about that. And number three, we are changing our minds about God. I cannot escape Him. I will be judged. The Scripture says, and as it is appointed unto men once to die, after this, the judgment. Judgment is, is inescapable. What recourse do I have then if I am a condemned sinner and condemned justly and I can't do anything about my problem and God is a just judge? I am guilty, guilty, guilty as charged. What will I do? What can I do? I will, as we've sung repeatedly this morning, I will plead for mercy. And a miraculous event occurs. The judge of my sin becomes the savior from my sin. My status before God is changed. Because of Christ's death on my behalf, I may go free. And instead of a criminal on the block, I become an adopted child. And it begins with repentance. And that's what we've been seeing here is a long prayer of repentance here in Nehemiah chapter 9. As we have seen repeatedly in the Old Testament, it is a history of man's wickedness. His failure to obey God, to heed God, to trust God. Israel's history is reviewed in the prayer in our text. This whole chapter 9 is a review of Israel's history. And now we come to the, the present, in the present text. Guilt has now been acknowledged, and now there's a plea for mercy. So look in, uh, look at verse 25. 
He says that they took strong cities and a fat land and possessed houses full of goods. Wells that were already digged, vineyards and olive yards, and fruit trees in abundance. And so they did eat and were filled and became fat and delighted themselves in thy great goodness. They received all this benefit from God. The first generation accepted this. In the uh, beginning of the book of Judges, and it says, the, pe- the children of Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua, and all the days of the elders that outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great things that God had done, and there arose a generation who knew not the Lord. They had never experienced the manna. They had never seen the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire. It was a story to them that their grandparents told them. The land had already been conquered for the most part. They were receiving the the perks and benefits from it, but they didn't participate in it. They didn't see it happen. For them, it's, it's a story. And so they forsook the things of the Lord. It says in verse 26, Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against them. And cast thy law behind their backs, and slew thy prophets which testified against them to turn them to thee. And they wrought great provocations. We want to go our own way, and instead of worshiping the the God who does things, who fed our forebears in the desert, who provided water from the rock, who delivered us from Egypt with great plagues and parted the Red Sea and destroyed the armies of Egypt, instead of worshiping that God, we're going to come into the land of promise, and we are going to find the gods that these people worshiped. Gods that brought upon the judgment of God, and that's why the Canaanites were eliminated. If we were to go back to Genesis chapter 15, the reason that Egypt, or that Israel was in Egypt for 450 years was for two, three reasons really. Number one, to grow the, the people. They went 70 people down, they came out between a million and a half and three million people. And again, sit down with a calculator, and you can do that. Without a whole lot of trouble, you can grow 70, 70 people, just like a great investment, 70 people into a million and a half. But it says that the, the guilt of the Amorites, the Canaanites, was not complete yet. God was being patient with those people. Judgment was going to fall. And Israel was going to be the tool in God's hands to bring about that judgment. But the, the guilt, the iniquity of the Amorites was not yet full. And so God in his patience waited 450 years before judgment fell on the Canaanites. And Israel came in. And in the third generation, instead of maintaining their gratitude, their thankfulness, their devotion to the God who gave them this wonderful land, they embraced the gods of the Amorites, the gods of the Canaanites. And I, I used to, when I was a kid and I, I had, and I'd heard some of these stories and then when I was a new believer and I'm reading through it on my own, I often wondered, why, why the appeal? Why was it that throughout the Old Testament you always see that idolatry is the great lure, the great stumbling block for Israel? Why was that? Let me tell you something. In the last generation here in America, The great hidden stumbling block, the thing that nobody wants to talk about. The great stumbling block for people in America and believers is pervasive pornography. We are inundated, inundated with sexual sins in our country. What? It's a fascinating thing. 
All, most of us remember the women's lib movement back in the 70s. You know that thing went away? You never hear about it. The, the, the victimization of women, the, 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 uh, uh, the, they're, 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 the objectification of, of women, that's all gone away. It's now open and accepted. Why? Pornography. Pornography is one of the biggest, nobody talks about this, it's one of the biggest industries in this country. And you wonder why they hate us in the Middle East. One of the chief reasons they hate us in the Middle East is because that is our chief export, and it's a huge stumbling block to their culture. They hate us because we are immoral. We are a wicked, deprived, corrupt society. But nobody talks about it. But it's all there. You can, you can look at it on your phone. You look at it on your PC. It is everywhere. And I believe that this is one of the reasons that the church has stumbled and the church has become powerless in this last generation. Because we go through the motions of doing what we're supposed to be doing, but our heart of hearts is corrupt because of private sin. What was the lure of Baal worship? I'll tell you what the lure of Baal worship was, was ritual prostitution. It made sex sacred. That you go down to the temple and part of your act of worship was to have sex with a prostitute. It was, it was acceptable. It made, it made it commonplace. They did what Isaiah would say. They turned things upside down. They called evil good and good evil. What God said was no longer acceptable. And instead, we're going to embrace the paganism of Baal worship because it appeals to the flesh. It was a great lure. It was a great stumbling block. God had told them it would be. It will be like thorns in your sides and and, 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 and thorns in your eyes. It will be a great stumbling block. You need to erase it. You need to destroy it when you come in. But they did not do it completely. And that third generation embraced it. And throughout most of the kingdom era, when you read the book, and, and, and before, most of the time the children of Israel were in the land, you read the book of Joshua. Not so much Joshua. You read the book of Judges. You read the books of Samuel. And especially the books of Kings. And you will find that throughout most of Israel's history, we're, sp- we're talking about a period of over 700 years, probably 800 years. Most of the time, even during the, you know, we're dealing with this period of time when Solomon built the temple, when David was king. But most of those years, Baal worship was a big problem. As a matter of fact, Baal worship was much more common than the worship of the Lord. When Elijah had the showdown with the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. And the fire came down and they destroyed the prophets of Baal, but Elijah ended up fleeing for his life. And he went down to the Sinai and he said, they have destroyed your prophets and they've, they've thrown down your altars and I alone am left. And when you consider the fact that the Lord said, hey, I have 7,000 people who have not bowed the knee to Baal. You say, wow, 7,000 people. Yes, but we're talking about a population of hundreds of thousands. You only had 7,000 people left who were being faithful to the Lord. Now, praise the Lord for the 7,000. And when it was all said and done, they were the ones that mattered. Because Baal worship was eventually eradicated. But it lets you know how pervasive the wickedness was. How, how socially acceptable it was. It is a fascinating thing how much the, the corruption of the flesh dominates and even when we have this, this, uh, this, this subtle veneer of respectability in our country, the corruption is just underneath the surface. 
we are dealing with just a, a thin skin of respectability in our country. And there's depravity and wickedness under the surface. Such was the case with Old Testament Israel. They were disobedient, it says. They rebelled against thee. They cast thy law behind their backs and slew thy prophets. They don't want to hear the truth. They don't want to hear the truth. I, 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 uh, I, I was going to contact a friend in Georgia. His church doesn't exist anymore. They closed their doors. He, not a sin problem on his part. The congregation went away. Over a period of years, it went away. Now, it wasn't a big church. It was a church about the size of ours. But his, church, his congregation went away. And this is becoming a big problem across the Bible Belt in the South. What happened? Are people st- did people stop going to church? No, oh no, they're going to church. They're going to this huge, monstrous mega church over here that tells people what they want to hear with the big concert, and they're all happy and all excited, and church is fun, and they're getting very little, if any, Bible content. And because it's big, and because it's fun, and if I, if I, if I've had a long time on Saturday, if I've, I've just, or if I want to go camping on Sunday instead of going to church, I can do that because no one will care whether I show up every week at the big huge church. If I was going to little church, everybody knows when I'm not there. There's no accountability, there's no accountability in the big church. And also, there's no real family in the big church. In that big mega church. And those gigantic churches are killing the little churches. They're sucking the life out of... Because when you do that, when you have one of those come into your community, you do not have, folks, this has been been proven over and over again, you do not have a net gain of people attending church in your town. Instead, what you do is you have this gigantic thing that sucks the life out of all these little churches. I have a friend who pastors in South Carolina, a church of about, or a town of about, uh, about 35 to 40,000 people. He pastors a little church in a very poor community, and he's stayed in that poor community to minister to those people. And he's always had a small group of people, and it's, it's stayed relatively stable. But he has his pick. If he wanted to move out of the neighborhood he's in, there are empty church buildings all over his town, because down over here next to the freeway, is a church that runs about 6,000 in a community of 35,000. And that has sucked the life out of all the other churches. Are we seeing an improvement in the preaching in the, in the, in the, in the, the, the gospel message? Absolutely not. Are we seeing a great many people saved through this effort? Absolutely not. What are we seeing? We're seeing that the supposed Christian community is putting all their eggs in one basket and that basket's full of holes. What's the appeal? The appeal is, is the same thing with Baal worship. It's an appeal to the flesh. To give people what they want instead of what they need is to be a traitor to God Almighty. And it's happening all the time. Verse 27. Therefore, thou deliver them into the hands of their enemies who vex them. And in their time of the trouble, when things finally got rough, when things finally got difficult... They cried unto thee, and thou, here's the mercy of God, thou heardest them from heaven according to thy manifold mercies, and thou gavest them saviors, this is the judges, who saved them out of the hands of their enemies. And the Lord gave them that judge, and the people repented, and they turned back to the Lord, and the God gave them victory over that, that vexatious enemy who had come in. 
And the people would serve the Lord all the days of the judge. But the judgeships were not hereditary. They weren't a king. And the judge would pass off the scene, and we'd see the same thing happen over again. I grew up in the metro Detroit area. I've been here more than half my life, but I grew up in the metro Detroit area. And when we were in, in high school, then even in college, we used to go to a place called Cedar Point. Anybody here have been to Cedar Point? All right, you know what I'm talking about. Cedar Point was, was one of the earlier premier amusement parks. I don't know if they still vie for this, but they used, they used to be in the, in the running for having the biggest, fastest roller coasters in the country. And when you get on that roller coaster, you're sitting, I used to like to sit in the front where it pushes you up over the hills. Or in the very back where it snaps you around. Never in the middle. One, one or the other. <sighs> click, 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 click. You know what I'm talking about. Click, 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 click. You get up to the top, and then, whoom, 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 up and down, up and down, up and down. That's the book of Judges. That's the period of the kings. Up and down and up and down. The problem is here, in the Bible, it's mostly down. And the trip down was often fast. And it was usually crash at the bottom of the hill, too. Over and over again. It was a, a standard pattern over a period of, of hundreds of years. Now, you would think, you would think that all we have to do is look back. Oh, I saw, I remember, remember, remember the story they told us? Remember what grandma and grandpa used to tell us? Yeah, I remember what happened to them. Well, we're seeing it all over again. Oh, no, it won't happen this time. You know, we, we, we never learn. We never learn. They never learned. Let me change that. It took them 800 years. Because the generation that is praying this prayer here in Nehemiah chapter 7. Chronologically, chronologically, Nehemiah was probably a contemporary of Malachi. This is one of the last books of your Old Testament as far as uh, the timetable, the timeline. It took them this long to get it, to set aside their idolatry, to recognize the crimes, the sins of their ancestors, and finally get it. And by the way, by the time we get to the end of Nehemiah, you're going to find that they didn't always get it. And we wonder why our culture is declining. We're wondering why we're seeing an increase in crime. We wonder why we're seeing all these things. When we set aside the things of the Lord... When we set aside the clear message of the, of the gospel, when people are not really being born again, even though they're sitting in church, when God has not done a work of regeneration in the heart and life and transformed their lives, when the Spirit of God is no longer working in the hearts and lives of people, what do we expect? Same thing that happened in ancient Israel. It's no different. Things don't change. The pattern of of human lives, the pattern of history is always the same. But God would raise up saviors. And he saved them out of the hand of their enemies. Verse 28. And after they had rest. Boy, I'm glad that's over. Oh, God was a good God. He, He saved us. He delivered us. But after they had rest, they did evil again. And this pattern, this is the roller coaster. Up and down and up and down. Mostly down. And what's fascinating is if you look at a chronological chart, you can go online and find these things. You don't need the, the, all, the, all the books and stuff. You will find that the history of Judges was like this. So that we get to the, the end, 
And very often we would see an up and down in one person's lifetime. Instead of it being an ancient history that your grandparents or great-grandparents told you about. You know, early on, they had rest for 40 years. But we have this one over here, and by the time they caught their breath, it started over again. God gave them rest, but they did evil before they... Therefore, leftest thou them in the hand of their enemies, who had dominion over them. Yet when they they returned and cried unto thee, thou heardest from heaven. And many times thou didst deliver them out of their enemies. You know, we're, we're focusing on the mercy of God, and yet the key th- one of the key things is also the long-suffering and patience of God. How many times, if somebody comes to you and says, Ah, ah, forgive me! How many times do we forgive them? The Lord told Peter, 70 times 7. And I suppose there are always some people checking them off. Ah, that was 372. We're getting close. (laughs) God is merciful. And when we look at this history, it's easy for us to wag the finger. It's easy for us to read the news and look around here and drive through the city of Seattle and wag the finger. But as we've mentioned before, that ultimately, the root cause of the failure that we see around us is us. If God's people would simply be and do what we are supposed to, I believe that in a large degree, a lot of these problems would go away. At least in-house. The church is notorious for hypocrisy. And that stereotype is justified most of the time. We are hypocrites. We tell the world to do this thing, and we are no different. Those who claim to be born again, the divorce rate is not appreciably lower than those that are, that don't, that uh, don't claim to be Christians. The, uh, rate of young people shacking up and not getting married, at least to begin with, is not appreciably different between those who claim to be Christians and those who don't. And if we are honest, the problem of pornography is probably just as bad, if not worse, sometimes in the Christian community because the world can do it in the open, but the Christian has to do it on the sly, and that's the way he gets gets his sin in. He does it so no one else can see or know. We have quenched the work of the Spirit of God, and we wonder why we're powerless. Verse 29, and testified against them, God testifying, he is the witness, that thou mightest bring them again under unto thy law. And yet they dealt proudly, and hearkened not unto thy commandments, but sinned against thy judgments, which if a man do, he shall live in them, and withdrew the shoulder. It's like, let me alone, I can do my own thing. They withdrew the shoulder. And hardened their neck and would not hear. We, this pattern repeats itself all over the world. Years ago, I've shared this story. The fellow I knew had an opportunity to drive three hours, take a guy to an airport. A fellow who had grown up, an older man who had grown up in the sawdust trail years, back when they used to build the citywide tabernacles and have six weeks of evangelistic preaching. An evangelist would come to your community. They would build this gigantic tabernacle. They would put sawdust down on the floors. They'd have benches. And the people, by the tens of thousands, they would fill this huge makeshift auditorium. 
And the fellow would preach every night for six weeks and the place would be packed. And very often a revival would turn out, would happen in that community. When Billy Sunday preached in South Bend, Indiana, when he was done, the president of Studebaker gave him a new automobile. He said, why are you doing this? I don't, you know, I, I, I don't need this. I, so please take it. It is worth it to us. So many of our employees have turned their lives over to Christ and thousands, tens of thousands of dollars worth of stolen tools have returned in the last three or four weeks. Take the car, please. Bars close. The drug problem evaporates because revival happens. Those are all side effects. Without revival, that's why we have the problems. And when people say, I don't want to hear the message... This old-time preacher was asked, where are, the, where are the preachers like we had in the old days? When, you, when the fellow would get up there and preach, and he would give the invitation, and, and dozens, if not hundreds of people would come forward, and they'd spend the rest of the night dealing with the people who came forward at the evangelistic meeting. And there were a great revival would happen in the community, and the, and the community was transformed at least for a generation. Where are the, where are the preachers? And the old-timer looked at the young fellow and says, you don't understand the message is still the same. We still have the preachers. It's the audience. The audience has changed. And here's a man who was in his, I think, 80s at the time, and he had seen that transition. He had seen the ups and downs. Traveled overseas. He'd seen it all over the place. The message never changes. We have been preaching the same gospel, the same standard of holiness for, for 2,000 years. The same Savior for 2,000 years. And sometimes people are eager for the Word of God. Sometimes they respond. And sometimes, like we saw here at the end of verse 29, they withdrew the shoulder and hardened their neck and would not hear. Yet many years didst thou forbear them and testified against them by thy spirit and thy prophets. Yet they would not give ear. Therefore, gavest thou them into the hands of the people of the lands. And yet, here's the key thing. They're they're talking about Israel. They're not talking about the church, but they're talking about ancient Israel. This is the Old Testament. God is merciful. God is long-suffering. And as we saw last time, God makes promises that he must keep. It isn't dependent on the people he made the promise to. It's based on the character of God. God must keep his word, whether the people he's made the promise to keep theirs or not. Verse 31, nevertheless, for thy great mercy's sake, thou dost not utterly consume them, nor forsake them, for thou art a gracious and merciful God. Israel exists today. And there will come a day when there is a national repentance of Israel. It says so in Romans 11. It's talked about in what we talked about last week with the new covenant there in Jeremiah 31. There will come a day when all the Jews that are left in the world, will believe. God will fulfill his word. He will keep his promise. And this same God is gracious and merciful always. Yes, he is the judge. But he is patient and he is gracious and he is merciful. And that's why we have a Savior. And that's why we have forgiveness. And that's why we can have salvation. And that's why if we are God's children and we are wayward and pull back the shoulder... There's restoration and forgiveness. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the the gracious mercifulness of God. 
Thank you for your patience. Thank you for your provision in the Savior. And Father, if there's somebody here today that has never trusted Christ as Savior, may today be that day of salvation. Father, if there is somebody here today who is your child, but they are not walking in fellowship with you, they have followed the allure of Baal or whatever else the distraction might be, Father, may they return to you. Father, may we heed the warning of our ancestors. May we learn the lesson from the Old Testament. And Father, may we walk in fellowship with a gracious and merciful God. We pray for Christ's sake. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Grace Baptist Sermon Podcast. If you'd like to know more about faith in Jesus Christ or more about our ministry, please visit www.gracebaptistpuallop.org. Until next time, may you walk worthy of the Lord.